as we come to this time of worship in God's word this morning. I want to begin by just reading a quote from one of my readings this morning from John Piper. He writes, Joy is not just the spin-off of obedience to God, but part of obedience. It seems as though people are willing to let joy be a byproduct of our relationship to God, but not an essential part of it. People are uncomfortable saying that we are duty-bound to pursue joy. They say things like, don't pursue joy, pursue obedience. But Christian hedonism responds, that's like saying, don't eat apples, eat fruit. Because joy is an act of obedience. We are commanded to rejoice in God. If obedience is doing what God commands, then joy is not merely the spin-off of obedience. It is obedience. The Bible tells us over and over to pursue our joy. And it is with that note that I want to look at our text this morning. I want us to consider joy in the Christian life and, and have us consider what role it plays and hopefully find it in some unexpected places. Therefore, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message I have called Three Unexpected Reasons for Joy in the Christian Life. For those of you that might be using the Pew Bible, you can find the text on page 925. And as always, I want to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Hence, it is not, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You may be seated. On September 2nd, 1945, more than 250 ships dropped anchor in Tokyo Bay. Aboard the USS Missouri, which was also anchored there, the flags of the United States and Britain and China, and at that time the Soviet Union, were upraised. And then dignitaries boarded the ship and made their presence known. And then shortly after 9 a.m. that morning, something monumental happened. Japanese Foreign Minister Mamoru Shigemitsu signed an unconditional surrender on behalf of the Japanese government, while one of their generals signed for Japanese armed forces. Those signatures would determine the next steps, not just for the United States, not just for Japan, but for the entire world at that time. Because with those signatures came the call to end what was known as World War II and the final fighting that made up that war. Only two weeks prior, there had been a military coup in Japan in which one group of people, one group of military men, 
burned down the residence of the prime minister and tried to take control, did take control of the imperial palace. The coup was quickly crushed just after a few hours. But it represents the concern that many Japanese had at that time. The concern was that indeed an unconditional surrender was coming and that it may be something that would devastate Japanese pride and nationalism. Apprehensive about the effects of such a surrender then, some were genuinely fearful about the outcome. But they also didn't comprehend fully what was taking place. However, Japanese leaders grasped both a wider view and a more long-term perspective. And that caused them to give in to this idea of surrender. With the end of the European aspect of the war, just a few months prior, all the perspective and all the emphasis now changed to Japan. A Navy blockade there had devastated their economy. It threatened to limit food arrivals and food supply. And no doubt it would begin to impact the individual lives of the people there. In just the month prior, two major events cost the lives of over 100,000 Japanese people. And no doubt if things continued, it would cost more lives. This had become an unwinnable war for them. And so Japanese leadership grasped something far more important. That unconditional surrender was not merely a means to end the war. It was a means and an opportunity to begin rebuilding without costing more. This surrender meant that they would avoid the cost, not just monetarily, but physically, of continuing forward. And yet at the same time, it would provide a framework for them to rebuild their nation. Once again, not just rebuilding it in terms of economy and money, or even just physically, but in this case, rebuilding emotionally and mentally and spiritually after such catastrophe that wreaked havoc there. Sometimes the best action to take is a decision to take no action at all, but to surrender. This is a call of of Christ upon the Christian life. It is a call of unconditional surrender. In our case, it is an appeal to renounce our allegiances to an evil leader, Satan. And it is a call to relinquish control of our lives, handing it over to the all-powerful God. Like the Japanese saw for themselves, the end is already written for us. We know what is coming, and the word of God reveals the outcome that he will prevail, and those who stand against him will not. It would be foolish, then, to not give up now what will surely be taken away later. I don't speak just of physical possessions. Many will seek to preserve other aspects, such as their pride and their control and their comfort. But it is only temporary, and upon Christ's return, all of that will be ripped from our hands anyway. It is rational, then, to give it up now. What will be lost later for the sake of preserving one's life costs us nothing to give it up now. It opens the door, then, to have our life rebuilt, again, like the Japanese. It removes all things that would ultimately destroy our life. 
And it puts us on a firmer foundation of characteristics, characteristics that will enhance our eternal life. The result is a livable life. One that brings joy because at the end it reaches its maximum fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what I hope we will grasp here when we look at our text. That there is greater joy in surrender than supremacy. That having Christ in our lives is more important than having control over our lives. As we've explored in Colossians 3, we come off two weeks now in which we saw this call to surrender certain aspects of our lives. To put to death all that is earthly. And now we come to a lengthier section. And this section tells us what to put on in place of what is taken off. But we focus specifically now on verse 10 this morning. And it states that those in Christ have put off the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Before we actually arrive to the teaching of verse 12 of what to put on, we have this brief interlude in verses 10 and 11. And I want you to see from them three reasons to have joy in the Christian life. I want you to note first, the joy of courageous reversal. We begin with the phrase, and have put on. The Lord brings clarity to his word through contrast. In his teaching, our infinite God makes himself known and understandable to our finite minds by the use of language that compares and contrasts aspects of the Christian life. And that's what we have before us this morning. Here in Colossians 3, through, through the hand of Paul, the Lord offers a contrast in the form of life reversal. From the old self to the new self. From the one who walks without Christ to the one who walks with Christ. And even from the one who walks away from God versus the one who will walk towards God. The previous verses, 5 through 9, the text we covered over the last two weeks, issues a call for all Christ followers to put off anything that is not in accordance with Christ. And then the upcoming verses, 12 through 17, describe the adornment of one who walks with Christ. But in the middle of those two texts, we have this interlude, this transition from the old self to the new self. The transition in the text is indicative of the transition in our lives, expressed by three simple words. Have put on. The new life is one decidedly and definitively cut off from the old self. The old has no influence in the new, and the new has nothing to do with the old. Most commonly, you will hear this transformation preached by the example of changing clothes. And there's a good reason for that. That word, put on, is most frequently used, 14 times in fact, to convey changing clothes exchanging one set of clothes and replacing them with another set. Such clothes here, though, are not like the graduation cap and gown that we simply put on, which are used to cover the clothes that are already on. If that were the case, the old clothes could become exposed at any time. Or one simply could change, take off that, that gown at any given time to fit the circumstances. That's not the case here. These clothes have been dirtied and soiled, so much so that they have to be completely removed. Much like any of us coming home from work 
and we need to change for whatever may be planned for the evening. We arrive home from the office or the mill or from the classroom or the farm, whatever it may be, and at the very least, our clothes are going to be sodden with our own sweat and grime. For some people, it would be solidified with the snot of young children. And some of us will even have our clothes petrified from the dirt and mud. And in some of the cases here, things far worse. <laughs> it's the same effect of the things in verses 5 and verse 9. The sexual immorality, evil desire, anger, gossip, and so on. Like one's clothes, these things are unclean. God doesn't want to be around people that have those things on them, and so they must be discarded. They are filthy, they are disgusting, and they have to come off. And so coming home, well, what do we do? We remove those unclean garments that I just described, and we place them, replace them with something that's more appropriate for whatever we're doing in the evening, whether it's a nice dinner out or simply time at home with the family. Whatever the case may be, we dress for the occasion. And in this case, we dress for meeting Christ. The difference is we don't go back and forth. This is a permanent dressing because Christ is always with us. What that clothing looks like will be explained further in verses 12 through 17. But such a wardrobe change begins with a purposeful action. Much like the decision to put off that we discussed earlier, that it conveys a decisive and willful intention. The decision to put on then also is a deliberate and intentional action. It is a complete reversal of life, removing from what once was to what now is. Those who have trusted Christ no longer walk in those sinful practices of the world. Hence that phrase in verse 7, in these you once walked. But no longer is that the case, as we talked about last week. Look with me at the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. It's a text we keep coming back to. And in this chapter, Paul adds further clarity in the last half of chapter 4. And I want to focus quickly on verses 17 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, he writes, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt, excuse me, is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you read through verse 32 of that text, you'll see that this passage very much parallels what we see in Colossians 3, 5 through 17, offering up the very same advice. But notice how the text starts out in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
The indication here is that they once walked like the Gentiles. They once walked literally like the world. And that description of this walk in in verses 19 through 22 is also similar to what we see in Colossians. But now they've exchanged their life, that life, for life in Christ. And so Paul concludes with this statement in verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember that phrase for later, true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians chapter 5 will go on and go further to describe this walk, noting that it is characterized by love in verse 1, and by truth in verse 8, and by wisdom in verse 15. By nature, though, people are content when they are comfortable. Change brings uncertainty because it takes something known and makes it unknowable. When things are a matter of routine, we know what to expect. And it requires little effort and little expectation on our part. For more pe- most people, it is much easier to be content and complacent where they are than to be uncertain about where they may be going. Transformation and change induce fear of the unknown. So people are more inclined to not do anything, even if it means existing in a perpetual state of discomfort, misery, and unhappiness and sin. In the last month, I've had several people call me seeking counsel about work situations, partly because their work situation is, of course, going the way of the world, which contradicts their Christian beliefs. But one woman, as I shared with her and talked with her about this difficult situation, and she shared what was going on. It really was an uncomfortable situation. It was going against her conscience. And she tried to work with them to the best she could. Ultimately, the result has been that they're making her life harder. And they're causing her to sin by going against her conscience in this manner. And so she's plagued with, what do I do? Admittedly, the easy answer is, you probably need to look for elsewhere. And logically, she knows this, but it is much easier to stay, even in what could be characterized as an abusive relationship, for the fact of she's comfortable, she knows what's going on. She has to provide for her family. It's much harder to give that up, not knowing how she can do that. Or it's much difficult to give up if she doesn't know where that's going to come from. The call before us to change from old self to new self It indicates making this complete reversal in life. And the willingness to do that takes courage. Hence the term courageous in the text title that I gave you. It means revealing our true nature to others, to ourselves, and most importantly, to God. Though he already knows our true nature. It calls upon us to expose ourselves to the cross and to put to death anything that needs to be crucified. Our unwholesome nature, our unhealthy relationships, and our unsavory lifestyles. Already living in, in them, we know what to expect. For example, even in a relationship in which a person draws us towards sin and evil, as I just shared with you in that testimony, we at least know what to expect. And so it's hard to set that aside. But to crucify that relationship leaves us with uncertainty. Because it leaves us asking, who will take that person's place? 
What will happen in my life? Who do I go to if it's necessary? All these questions cause angst and apprehension, inciting us to dormancy rather than duty, to subject ourselves to change, putting off the old and putting on the new. It is an initiative of courage. And while it takes great courage to come out of our comfort zone, to put on this new self, to surrender our lives to the Lord and allow him to work, that doesn't have to be as intimidating as it seems. First, because we see it's already been done. Verse 9, our text indicates that the Colossians and any believer, by coming to Christ, have already put off the old self. And now in verse 10, our text indicates the same theme, essentially saying, already you have put on the new self. By the work of Christ, the hard part is already done. This is explained further in the well-known text of 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But how did this happen? Verse 18 explains. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. The new life, the new self, is simply a matter of living out what Christ has already done in our lives. And how is that possible? Because a life in Christ is a life in the Spirit, specifically the Holy Spirit of God. Christ, in his teaching, assured his disciples that when he departed, the Spirit would be imparted to them. John chapter 14 John chapter 16 even says, this is a good thing that I go because then the Spirit will come. And then back in 14, he says that this Spirit will teach them and remind them of everything that Christ has said. This courageous life reversal we see from the old self to the new self. It is a change from living in the self to living in the Spirit. We need not be anxious about giving up who we are because that work has already been done by our Lord and Savior. There's another reason not to fear this, though. What is the outcome of living in the Spirit? Think about that. What happens when the Spirit takes control of our lives? I want to take a moment to read to you from Galatians 5, beginning in verse 18, and I'm not going to read this text in order. Beginning in verse 18 through 21, we read, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jump to verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Verse 25, but if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And verse 22 and 23, well known, but the, Spirit of the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So what happens when we put on the new self? We put on the Spirit that removes all these old things, the things of the old self. All those things that make our life distressed and destitute in self. 
And instead, our life becomes satisfied and satiated in the Spirit. It takes the disorder of our lives and gives it order. It transforms suffering into sanctification. And it makes the miserable life livable. The Spirit adds joy to our lives. It's one of the first things mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. To reject the world and turn to Christ takes courage. But the result is a joyful existence, despite that difficulty. It's a joyful earthly existence and definitely a joyful heavenly existence. But the courage comes with the willingness for us to utter the words of the psalmist in Psalm 51. Verses 10 through 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I want you to note second, the joy of continual renewal. The second part of verse 10 tells us something about the new self, saying it is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. While the believer already has a new self, it is in the process of being renewed. That tells us something. That tells us there is instant new life, but not instant maturity. The one being renewed is made complete. But that person always has the capacity for growth. This person's like a newborn baby. Upon birth, that child has everything it needs to sustain life. That baby is already a complete person. And yet it still has a capacity to grow. It won't always stay a baby. It won't always stay a child. Instead, it will grow physically. And it will grow intellectually and mentally and in maturity. This is the ongoing state of the Christian life. And once again, we have before us another contrast. From birth, every man, every woman, and every child is in the process of dying. But here, what takes place? The opposite. While the one who lives in self is dying, the one who's living in the spirit is being renewed. The word of Christ affirms this process throughout Scripture. To the Corinthians, they are encouraged by the words, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We've already read from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, and it tells us precisely that from the mind, a believer is in the process of being renewed. Renewed how? In righteousness and holiness. That's the definition of the Christian life. That between now and the point of ultimate glorification, the believer seeks renewal in righteousness and holiness. Using two prepositions in our text in Colossians 3, Paul explains two aspects of this renewal. First, it says, it is in knowledge. From the outset of this epistle, knowledge has formed the framework of Paul's longing for the Colossians. It becomes a part of his prayer for them in verse 9 of chapter 1 when he writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you can remember all the way back to November 21st, when I preached that text from this pulpit, you will remember that that word for knowledge is not your typical word. It's not referring to just head knowledge. It is a word to refer to a deep, thorough, intense knowledge, specifically a knowledge that comes from experience or through relationship. An examination of Romans 12.2 reveals that this knowledge will also give us assurance of God's will. That is to say, the more we do God's will, the more we become assured of God's will. Not only does one come to a knowledge of God's will, but that text in Romans 12.2 tells us that we will know that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. We live in a world that is constantly changing. It's constantly redefining what is right and what is wrong. This seems surprising to us because to us, what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. It's that simple. So why is society always changing the definition? Because they can never be assured that what they are doing is good, acceptable, and perfect. That knowledge comes from being renewed by the Spirit. And they don't have because they're living in the old self. In fact, they don't even have a new self. So they're not going to understand what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In contrast, though, the Christian has no doubts because he or she is being renewed in the knowledge. But that knowledge comes from knowing God through the work of the Spirit. This renewal should offer itself as a comfort to each and every single one of us. Never does the Lord then leave us to wonder what the next steps are or wondering if we are in his will at all. He's provided all that is necessary to know God's will. We only need to know God. If at any time we feel ourselves questioning or insecure about what his will is, we probably just need to spend more time with God. This is the final aspect of, or first aspect of renewal. Knowledge, specifically knowledge of God's will by knowing God's Son. But not only is the new self being renewed in knowledge, it also says it's being renewed after the image of its creator or in the image of its creator. This statement should cause us to ask, why does the new self need to be renewed after the image of its creator? And we find that answer first by looking to 1 Corinthians 15, reading verses 47 and 40 through 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And so is the man of heaven, so also are those who, have, who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. While being made in the image of God, every human bears too much resemblance to the image of the man of dust, that is, Adam. But those who are in heaven, who have a heavenly mindset, Colossians 3.1, indeed then should be looking to bearing the image of the one who is in heaven, Christ. Studying further, our, remember our scripture reading this morning from Romans chapter 5. The Lord continues to teach us yet through another contrast, this time by contrasting and comparing Adam and Christ. 
verse 19, verses 18 and 19, really offer a decent summary of this text, saying, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verses 12 through 14 speak of Adam, that through his disobedience came sin and death and destruction. But then verses 15 through 18 of that text, we see Christ, who by his obedience brought about life by destroying sin and destruction. Notice something about both aspects of renewal. They come out by the work of Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who imparts knowledge. And it is in his image that we're seeking to be made of. And be made of. But let me ask you to think more deeply about this. And I want to ask you, do you notice something else in common with both of those aspects of renewal? If we go all the way back to Genesis 3, what happens? Both of these, knowledge and image, are something that were destroyed at the fall. We could argue that by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that actually Adam and Eve gained more knowledge because now they understood good and evil. But at what cost? What did they lose? They lost a knowledge of God. First, through a perfect relationship. And they lost a knowledge of God's will. Furthermore, Genesis 1 tells us that humans were made in the image of God. And yet what happened at the fall? That image became distorted. The process of renewal in Colossians 3.10 is simply the act of restoration, recovering the display of the perfection of God's glory and experience of God's majesty that was lost by human inability. What was lost is being recovered. Those who are genuine believers then never need to be depressed over their current failures, never need to be insecure in their present circumstances, and never need to be anxious about prevailing self-doubts because through Christ, God is restoring all things to himself in perfection. This is a source of Christian joy. Not in the circumstances of now, but in the contentment that God is in the process of renewing us and bringing us to a point of future perfection. This is the joy of continual renewal. Allow me to close with a testimony from a mother. And she says, it occurred to me one day that I wasn't even enjoying my kids. I was reading books and taking parenting classes, trying to learn all I could to train them to be godly kids, but I wasn't enjoying them. The real tip-off was when my three-year-old son started asking me, Mommy, you're not mad at me? He would even ask this randomly throughout the day when I wasn't disciplining him. I took that as a bad sign. She goes on to share some of her frustrations beginning with the lack of obedience from her children. She explains that the youngest child inevitably would accidentally knock his sippy cup over all the time, and he lacked that self-control in which she would respond in anger. 
thinking it's just easy. Just control yourself. But it was not just the children. It was a relationship with her husband that looked this way too. Like many couples, one of the primary areas they, they argued about was money. Her frustration was that he wasn't making enough for her to stay home with the kids. In her words, my husband... <clears throat> excuse me. I hit a wrong button, so now I've lost her words. <laughs> In her words, she says, my husband was not making enough money to allow me to quit my job and stay at home with my kids. And he wasn't making enough money to pay off my debts. The list goes on and on. And I'm not going to recount them here. But I would ask you this. How would you counsel this lady? What would you say to these issues? What is the issue? Is it anger? Is it impatience? Is it a lack of respect? No. It's idolatry. This wife and this mother had an idea of the perfect home. And she had exalted that view up here and replaced it with Christ's view. Seeking to have everybody conform to her expectations. And when those standards were not met, she responded accordingly. She goes on to say, I began to realize that the idols of my heart were driving me to sin and get what I wanted or to sin if I didn't get what I wanted. Most convicting of all, I realized I'm a Christian woman, and I'm supposed to be joyful, but why am I not joyful when I know I should and could be? These questions started to prick me. At this point, I decided that I was going to do whatever was necessary to change. I didn't want to live like this anymore, and I didn't want to be characterized by being harsh, critical, controlling, and mean-spirited. Interestingly enough, that through counseling, this woman memorized Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. I don't think I need to tell you that the text that she memorized from Ephesians is the same text that we read in Ephesians. Instead of attempting to obey verses 22 and 24, she says, which say put, on, put off part and put on the other, she began to focus on verse 23, which is what? It talks about the renewal of the mind. And so she began to keep herself accountable. And whenever she was tempted to be angry, she began to ask herself questions like, why? Why am I this way? And what she saw was a pattern, a pattern of selfishness that took away her Christian joy. And one day she came before the Lord in prayer, literally upon her knees, and gave everything over to the Lord, telling him to take control of everything in her life, including her and she says this, and because she's freely shared this, I have no problem sharing her testimony. She says, I asked God to help me to take the focus off my kids and my husband as a primary source of my fulfillment and joy, and to help me to find satisfaction in God alone. I realized for the first time that I had never done that. And in the days that followed, I attempted to put off anger and impatience and all other sinful behaviors, and to put on the godly characteristics. The human heart can make an idol out of most anything. And when it's allowed to persist, it implements barriers into our lives. They will prevent us from having a relationship with family and with fellow Christians and so on. But most importantly, those idols will prevent us from having a relationship with the Lord 
because they prevent us from unconditionally surrendering our lives to him. Such idols remove the joy out of our lives because they create conditions on our surrender. And when those conditions aren't met, they create anger and jealousy and strife and so on. (coughs) We can freely give our lives now, or we can have them taken away from us. It's really our choice. But I will tell you this, that by holding on to these things now, by clinging to the things that we think bring us joy in this moment, we actually obscure joy. Joy is found in unexpected places. First, it comes from sacrificing our trust in ourselves for the good of our lives. And instead, trusting someone else, that being God, for the good of our lives. It comes from giving up the idols of the heart, these things that we think will actually bring us joy, and instead finding our joy in Him. And it comes from the pain, pain of continual renewal in which the Lord confronts our hearts, that we may grow in knowledge and be conformed to his image. Genuine joy in Christ comes from genuine surrender in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're grateful for the way you work. And indeed, Lord, sometimes it is painful, it is difficult. And yet, that's where our joy should be, Lord. Not because of the circumstances are easy, but rather, Lord, because we know that it is your process of sanctification, your process of perfecting us and conforming us into the image of your Son. And so, Father, may we look upon every circumstance, every trial, every situation, and every even good thing and joyful event. May we look at it as a gift from you in which you're trying to align us and bring us closer to you, Lord. Father, give us a perspective in which we place you at the forefront of all things, that our mind is continually dwelling on the things above. Father, we thank you for for working in our hearts so continuously. We just commit that to you the rest of this week. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.